Hello and welcome. This is Michael Anderson. You're listening to episode 294 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Space 1970, Soyuz 9, Part 2. Continuing from the previous episode, Soyuz 9 has rolled out to the pad and is being readied for launch. Weather on launch day was good, with a temperature of 25 degrees C and a wind speed of 5 meters per second. It is June 1st, 1970. Cosmonaut Commander Kamanin met with the crew at 1400 in Area 31 to go over the secret code words for the mission. Since they were transmitting on an open channel with no encryption, the Soviets did not want the world to know everything that was going on during the Soyuz 9 flight. To accomplish this, the code words were used by the crew during communications with the ground. For example, when the cosmonauts radioed that they were good or excellent, that meant they were fully able to continue the flight. If they said their condition was normal, that meant that continuation of the flight required resolution of problems already known to the ground control. Satisfactory meant that the ground needed to quickly resolve a problem or the crew would have to land ahead of schedule. Kamanin also advised Nikolaev and Sevastinov not to take unnecessary risk. He would support them in any decisions they made in an emergency. At 1900, the State Commission met and gave permission for fueling of the booster to begin, starting the final countdown to a launch at 2400 local time. At 1955, the cosmonauts reported to the medical zone at Area 31. It took 45 minutes to get them in their biosensor harnesses. The cosmonauts arrived at the launch pad at 2145 and declared their readiness to the state commission to proceed with the flight. Three minutes later, they were in the capsule. At midnight, June 1, 1970, Soyuz 9 lifted off from Area 31 at Baikonur and successfully entered low Earth orbit with an apogee of 227 kilometers and a perigee of 176 kilometers. The launch to set a new record for space endurance went perfectly. The radio and television communications quality from the capsule were excellent. In the morning of June 2nd, the state commission members returned to Moscow. Kamanin and the Soyuz 9 backup crew, Kuznetsov and Shatilov, flew to Mission Control at Yevpatoria. There was a total of 500 staff at Yevpatoria for the mission, including 53 representatives from the Air Force, six military cosmonauts, and three civilian cosmonauts. The first communication session with Soyuz 9 was at the Izurisk station at 1540. In a three-minute conversation, the crew confirmed to ground that all was normal. For the Soyuz 9 flight, the Soviets created a group of people called the Landing Commission. This commission's role was to assess the flight status and to establish contingency plans for the next day in case an emergency return to Earth was required. The first meeting took place at 1900 hours. In the evening of June 2nd, 
Kamanin called Nikolaev's wife, Valentina Tereshkova. Tereshkova asked Kamanin to relay a message to her husband that she missed him and she was a little worried and was looking forward to seeing him on his return. While Tereshkova had Kamanin on the phone, she also made a special request. Nikolaev and Tereshkova's daughter would turn six on June 6th. Tereshkova wanted to fly to Yevpatoria so her daughter could talk to Nikolaev on her birthday. How could Kamanin say no to the first space family? How could he pass up such a great propaganda opportunity? Of course, Kamanin agreed to both requests. On day two, June 3rd, all went pretty well aboard Soyuz 9. At 10 o'clock, there was an operational management meeting. The operational management team was worried that the crew failed to engage and disengage the orientation engines at the time scheduled for an engine burn. But Kamanin defended his crew. He said it was not a mistake. It just took the crew 50 minutes to perform the procedure in space instead of only 30 minutes on the ground. The delay was due to weightlessness. In the evening, there was a TV communication session with the crew, and the consensus was that the crew appeared to be okay, but Sebastianov's face was visibly swollen. In the afternoon of June 4th, the third day of the mission, a problem was discovered with the control of the spacecraft's solar panels. On the 47th orbit, Sebastianov reported that one solar panel was energized, but only generating 26 amps. This meant the automatic control of the solar panels was not working. The crew tried engaging and disengaging the solar batteries manually, and after the 15th manual session, it became clear that the mission could last only eight days before the batteries would run down completely. So something had to be done if they were going to break the endurance record. On a previous flight conducted in October, the nighttime only lasted 10 minutes per orbit, which was not a problem for the battery. But with the orbit of Soyuz 9 in the month of June, the nighttime lasted 40 minutes per orbit. To compensate, Mission Control told the crew to revolve the spacecraft at 0.5 degrees per second around its long axis. By doing this, the spacecraft remained fully oriented toward the sun, and the batteries didn't have to work so long on the night passes. However, rotating the spacecraft at this rate could be hard on the crew, causing dizziness and nausea. But on the third day, the cosmonauts did not report any unpleasant sensation from the rotation. In fact, at the next communications session, the cosmonauts reported that their appetites were good and they were sleeping well. At 8.40 a.m. on day four, Kamanin discussed the solar battery problem in a communication session with the cosmonauts. Telemetry showed the solar system was generating 25.6 to 26.0 volts instead of 31. If the voltage dropped to 24 volts, an emergency situation would arise, and in that case, the crew would have to land within one and a half orbits of the Earth, or two hours they would likely have to land outside the tracking range of the Soviets. Apparently, the spacecraft had shifted out of its sun alignment, and the crew was able to get the spacecraft back into the solar orientation role, but it took six tries to accomplish the task. 
At 1,800 hours, clear communications were again obtained with the capsule. Nikolaev reported that when oriented to the sun, the system was generating 26 volts instead of the 31 volts it should be generating. A long technical discussion ensued. It was finally decided that the automatic orientation system was working correctly, but that Savashinov was confusing the ammeter and the voltmeter readings which were displayed on only one instrument. On day 5, during an 8.30 communication session with the crew, they reported everything was going well and they were eating well. However, later in the day, an alarming telemetry was received that indicated the temperatures in the fuel tanks were getting high due to the extended time of continuous exposure to the sun. The temperature did drop when the tanks went into shadow, so ground control decided to continue with the mission. On the sixth day, things were looking up. Soyuz 9's environmental control system continued to work well, although it was past its design lifespan. The environmental control system was Chief Designer Mission's greatest concern about the 18-day Soyuz 9 flight, since the system was only designed to work for four or five days. In the afternoon, Tereshkova and her daughter arrived at Mission Control. In the evening, the Landing Commission met to consider contingency landings. It was reported that the crew was medically in better shape on day six than day one, according to telemetry. In fact, they were doing so well, extension of the flight to 20 days duration was discussed. Later that evening, Tereshkova and her daughter communicated via radio and television with Nikolaev aboard Soyuz 9. On June 8th, day 7 of the flight, Tereshkova spoke with a young pioneers group. In the evening, she and Nikolaev enjoyed other communications sessions together. On day 8, Tereshkova and her daughter returned to Moscow. The landing commission met because the cosmonauts' activity level seemed to be declining. They were drinking little water and their oxygen consumption had declined as well. On June 10th, the Soyuz crew was finally given a day off. No experiments were scheduled and radio communication was minimized. The crew did play chess via radio with Soyuz 7 cosmonaut Viktor Gorbatko. The next two days proceeded along normally. Finally, on the 13th, day 12 of the mission, the Soyuz 9 crew began showing signs of fatigue. They started making mistakes, for example, putting the television camera on the wrong setting. This, coupled with other previous mistakes, prompted the landing commission to constantly monitor the weather at potential landing sites from June 14th onward so that a quick landing decision could be made if necessary. On June 14th, day 13 of the mission, the crew seemed to perk up a bit, and of course, they said everything was excellent. Landing was now planned for between June 16th and 19th. If the crew could make it until the 16th, they would take the space flight endurance record from the U.S. Gemini 7 crew. The 14th day got off to a rough start. The crew could not be contacted for the first three minutes they were in radio range. But finally, they came through, and they said everything was all right and their condition was excellent. However, 
At 12 noon, Sevastyanov accidentally engaged the automatic landing system. This removed the first lock on the system, which was then armed so that it would be activated by a signal from the barometer at an altitude of 11 kilometers above the Earth. It was said not to be dangerous, but Filipchenko made the same mistake on Soyuz 7. Kamanin had asked Mission to put a lock on the automatic landing system switch to prevent this from happening, but he failed to do so. At 12.30, the State Commission returned to ground control at Epitorium, and Chief Designer Mission had his first communication session with the crew. They were now experiencing problems with the environmental control system. The carbon dioxide level was up to 8.5 millimeters, and the oxygen level was down to 160 millimeters. Mission told the crew to turn off CO2 cartridge number 2 and use number 3 instead. And by 2300, it was clear that cartridge number 2 was the problem because cartridge number 3 returned the environmental control system to normal. With the system working properly, Nikolaev floated an idea to Mission that he would like to use the two-day reserve of consumables aboard Soyuz 9 to extend the mission to 20 days. Mission liked the idea. However, Kamanin did not, saying it would be a dangerous adventure. The whole point of having a reserve was that it was never used except in the case of an emergency. On day 15, a local telemetry commutator failed. Fortunately, the telemetry data involved was not critical to the flight so Mission allowed the flight to continue. Mission was also still thinking about extending the flight to 19 or 20 days. Of course, to do this, the crew would have to stretch their rations. Kamanin found himself out of the decision loop on this issue, probably because everyone knew he was against the extension. But Kamanin did find an ally with the landing commission, because they still wanted to complete the flight as scheduled on the 287th orbit. On June 17th, the Soyuz 9 crew set a new space endurance record. Everything appeared normal aboard the spacecraft, except, of course, for the failed telemetry commutator and the engaged automatic landing system switch. Since the record was broken, the party bosses wanted to have a big greeting for the crew in Moscow, but Kamanin wanted the crew in the hands of the doctors for the first 10 to 12 days after the flight. At 1500, Mission followed his boss's orders from Moscow and announced that they wanted to extend the flight to 20 days. But on day 17, the final landing commission meeting was held. They decided the flight of Soyuz 9 would end as planned on the 18th day. The landing commission refused to extend the flight to 20 days. The primary landing site would be 100 kilometers west of Karaganda. Mission pushed for this spot because it was near a city with passenger train service. However, if the guidance system failed, Soyuz 9 would be on a ballistic re-entry which would cause it to land in the Oral Sea. As a precaution, additional recovery forces consisting of three amphibious vehicles, 
three helicopters, five naval cutters, and 15 scuba divers would be alerted and prepared. The Politburo approved the landing plan. After landing, the cosmonauts would be flown to Tchaikovsky Airfield and admitted to the hospital for 10 days. Meanwhile, the crew prepared for landing. They secured the orbital module and stowed items in the descent module for the return to Earth. And finally, at the end of the day, Afanashev, Kiras, Chertok, Bushayev, Tisbin, and other members of the State Commission arrived at Yevpatoria. On June 19th, day 18, at 1300 hours, it was reported that the landing site was ready. The conditions were 12 to 15 kilometers visibility with 5 to 7 meter per second winds. At 1400, it was officially ordered that the landing commence. There were 150 technicians in the hall of mission control for the landing. Nikolaev reported the start of the retro burn and the separation of the spacecraft's orbital and instrumentation modules. These modules would burn up in the atmosphere, with the crew safely occupying the descent module. Having shed two-thirds of its mass, the Soyuz reached entry interface at a point 121 kilometers above the Earth, where friction due to the thickening atmosphere began to heat its outer surfaces. With only 23 minutes left before it landed, attention in the module turned to slowing its descent rate. Eight minutes later, the spacecraft was streaking through the sky at a rate of 230 meters per second. Before it touched down, its speed would have to be slowed to only 1.5 meters per second. Several onboard features ensured that the vehicle and crew landed safely and in relative comfort. Four parachutes deployed 15 minutes before landing dramatically slowing the vehicle's rate of descent. Two pilot parachutes were the first to be released, and a drogue chute attached to the second one followed immediately after. The drogue, measuring 24 square meters in area, slowed the rate of descent from 230 meters per second to 80 meters per second. The main chute was the last to emerge. It was the largest chute with a surface area of 1,000 square meters, its harnesses shifted the vehicle's attitude to a 30-degree angle relative to the ground, dissipating heat, and then shifted it again to a straight vertical descent prior to landing. Two helicopters sighted the parachute and followed the capsule to landing. The main chute slowed the Soyuz to a descent rate of only 7.3 meters per second, which is still too fast for a comfortable landing. One second before touchdown, Two sets of three small engines on the bottom of the vehicle fired, slowing the vehicle to soften the landing. Within a minute after the capsule landed, General Goregayad and Colonel Popoff were already at the hatch. Following landing, Leonov advised that the crew was all right. However, the cosmonaut's condition after landing was dreadful. It was painful and difficult for them to get up. They fell down in their first tortured attempts at walking. They had to be dragged along by the arms. At 16.30, a plane left from Saki for Moscow with the cosmonauts aboard. Both of the cosmonauts looked very ill on the plane. They had to be supported by Shatilov and Yelizhev to get down the stairs in Moscow. 
Nikolaev departed from his prepared speech to the State Commission and simply said, Comrade Chairman, the orders for flight aboard the spacecraft Soyuz 9 were fulfilled and we await further orders. After the report, the cosmonauts were rushed to the hospital. At this point, it was obvious to the Soviets that they were seriously mistaken about the effects of zero-g on human beings. For instance, Mission thought flights of three to four months would be no problem. Three days after landing, the cosmonauts still appeared ill, with pulses of 90 to 100 and temperatures of 37.8 degrees C. They reported that Earth's gravity felt to them like three to four Gs after landing. They were only slowly adapting to one G. Six days after landing, the crew was recovering slowly. It was recommended to Smirnov that the Soviet Union not plan any space flights over 20 to 25 days duration and that a new series of Soyuz spacecraft be built to extend experience in long-duration flight. Ten days after their flight, the Soyuz 9 crew could still only work three to four hours a day. They could only take two short walks daily and they tired quickly. Their pulse, temperature, blood pressure fluctuated from day to day, often being in the range of ill people. Two weeks after landing, Nikolaev and Sevastyanov finally attended their post-flight reception at the Kremlin. Over 900 people were there to greet them. On July 30th, about six weeks after landing, Nikolaev and Sevastyanov flew to Sochi, to write out their post-flight debriefing. Mission still wouldn't accept that there were problems with sustained zero-g flight, since that would wreck the assumption on which he had based his Salyut station plans. Kamanin still believed a series of 30 to 50, then 50-plus day flights were needed to investigate and prove human adaptability to space. But with the next American mission delayed until next year, the Russians have re-entered the race. Their Soyuz 9 space flight has already broken the space endurance record. Cosmonauts Nikolaev and Sevastyanov went into orbit on June the 1st, and the flight was expected to continue until they'd completed three weeks in space. It is believed that Nikolaev and Sevastyanov didn't take the bungee exercise regiment seriously, and the solar orientation spin the Soyuz had to go into to keep the battery charge affected the crew physically as well. From Soyuz 9, the Soviets learned that exercise equipment would have to be incorporated into a Salyut space station so that cosmonauts could keep up their muscular strength. They also learned that with the long periods cosmonauts were expected to spend aboard the Salyut the practical aspects of the program's medical and biological training needed to be greatly expanded. Cosmonauts would have to learn to perform emergency medical procedures in case anyone fell sick in space. Cosmonauts would now be trained on how to extract teeth and how to administer and interpret electrocardiograms and encephalograms. They also would have to learn to take blood samples from both the finger and the veins as well as other common medical procedures. 
In conclusion, Soyuz 9 did achieve its goal of setting a new space endurance record of 18 days, but it was very costly to the health of the two cosmonauts. More important than setting a record, though, was the information returned on how extended duration and microgravity affected the crew. This was very valuable information for the upcoming Salyut space station. Salutations from Corpus Christi, Texas. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 294 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Space 1970, Soyuz 9, Part 2. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. First of all, sincere apologies for the mispronunciation of Russian names in this episode. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 121 episodes are available on the Archive podcast. Just search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. I want to credit my sources for this episode. Roads to Space, compiled by the Russian Scientific Research Center for Space Documentation. Two Sides of the Moon by Alexei Leonov and David Scott. Astronautics, the website. Space Facts, the website, Sven Graf, the website, Wikipedia, and the NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive. Had a few afterthoughts on this episode. You could kind of see how the crew's concentration faded a bit as the mission went on from all the mistakes they made, like failing to start and stop the engine burn in accordance with schedule, Six attempts to get the Soyuz back into solar rotation. Mistaking voltage and current readings. Incorrect settings on the TV camera. And the biggest, perhaps, mistake, engaging the automatic landing system way too early. It seemed to me the longer time they spent in space, the worse their condition got. But... They were cosmonauts, so they always report their condition as excellent, just like astronauts would usually do the same thing as well, because they have that test pilot background. Which brings up another point. Why did the Soviets have to use code words to talk to the, to the cosmonauts? Remember, satisfactory means that the ground needs to quickly resolve a problem or the crew will have to land ahead of schedule. Now, come on. Is that really a state secret that they had a problem? I don't know. That doesn't seem right. Anyway, I also found Soviet politics were very interesting in this episode. Do you think cosmonaut commander Kamanin had a good relationship with chief designer Mission? I'm not thinking so. They were on the total opposite ends of the spectrum on a lot of issues. Okay, before I forget, I also wanted to mention that I had the opportunity to see the new Apollo 11 movie, and I thought it was great. I had a smile on my face practically the whole movie. Now, this is a documentary. 
The only person explaining things is Walter Cronkite, and he's not used that much. But I really enjoyed this film. If you get a chance to go see it, I'm giving it the score of five rockets. That's equivalent to five stars. So I enjoyed it, and Mrs. SRH enjoyed it as well. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2019, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. You may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-supported. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate, as well as they're entered into the weekly drawing. We were pleased to receive two donations to support the podcast over the past week. Edward R. from Georgia donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji, and Michael W. donated at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. We are still at 216 Patreons, with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019, and our total donors for 2019 have reached 288, with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For the 288 of you who have already donated in 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Roy Burgess. Roy, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I will try to have episode 295 posted by next Thursday, T-6, until episode 300. So long for now.